So Jesus went around telling stories. He was full of stories. If I was on as clear a mission as Jesus was, and one that I knew would be limited in length, I'd have probably gone more forceful campaign style, making my case with burning, passionate arguments and lots of charts to make clear what was expected and how it would happen. But not Jesus. Apart from some pointed sermons, which often ended somewhat mysteriously, he told stories. That seems like a risky approach when your job is to build a kingdom, even if it is an underground, almost guerrilla kind of movement, in three years' time. Jesus' stories often include minute details, but also unfinished, wide-open parts. They're roomy in that way. They translate well, and they cross cultures because they're genuinely human. And they tend to age well. Not only have they lasted for tens of hundreds of years, we also notice different things about them at different times in our lives. Take this morning's story. First time I heard about this father and his two sons, little Mennonite girl that I was, I was completely caught up in the ring. Did God know? (laughs) Did God know there was a story in the Bible where a dad slipped a big shiny ring on, on the finger of his son who had made some really bad mistakes? And the pigs also had my attention because, well, I thought pigs were funny. And what they ate interested me. Later, I started to feel a little kinship with the older brother. Uh, A bossy scorekeeper, pure and simple, made complete sense to me. And then I became a parent. And sometimes there was haywire behavior on the part of our kids that I hadn't seen coming Did it reflect on me as a parent? Was I loving enough and also fair enough? How was this all going to turn out, and how much was my responsibility? Jesus sets up an orderly family in his story in Luke 15. The parents seem to have done careful planning about their assets while they were in midlife and their sons were still both at home. And they must have communicated quite specifically with their sons about how the estate would be divided. Clearly, the older son was in the family business. And from the tone of the story, there was likely a place for the younger son, too, but he had an itch. Notice that dad doesn't protest or threaten or ask questions when son, too, asks for his inheritance early in his life. Dad, matter-of-factly, did what was understood to be part of his uh, part of the agreement, his part of the agreement. He gave son, too, what he was promised. And then with no emotion in Jesus' telling, <clears throat> the action in this story switches to son's two experiences. Now, Jesus goes a little stereotypical here and creates a kind of wild younger son, who's feeling a little crowded and so is bent on experimenting. He rips through the trust fund. He tramps over his family reputation. 
and he gets more independence than he may have been looking for so that he ends up with pigs as roommates. And we don't know how long this goes on, but it could have easily been years. Then he discovers something about life. Something outside his control happens. A severe famine. He has no margin at all. And he becomes desperately hungry and lonely and without any prospect of work other than caring for despicable animals. All he's left with is his memory and a hunch about his dad. And after he's found some scraps to eat and had some sleep, he, t- he turns reflective. He thinks about his options. Maybe he did some exploring. Running home to dad and mom was likely not his first choice. This guy must have been paying some attention while he was living with his parents. Because rather than strategizing a blustering defense, he realizes that there's really only one authentic speech that might have a chance of capturing his dad's attention and his heart. And he practices it to make sure he'll be able to say it genuinely. Three points and no extra words. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. No excuses. No self-defense. Sounds to me like he's had some good training while growing up. Parents look for these signs. So he starts out for home. No one to say goodbye to in his current world. No possessions to pack and send on ahead. And then we come to a hinge point in the story. But while he was still far off, in verse 20. And here is where the story can go any direction. Son, too, might be reconsidering. I I imagine him within home site within sight of the home place, and he's suddenly facing that great distance he still has to cover. Will it be worth the risk? What will he find? Maybe mom's mad. Good chance his older brother will act more superior than ever. Will his dad even refuse to look at him? Did Sun, too, maybe spend several days and nights here contemplating his chances? He watches the neighbors come and go. Multiple vehicles surround the place. Lots of animals. No sign of economic trouble in his absence. And then one afternoon, he starts across the open field, exposed in every way. And within minutes... He sees a figure coming toward him, yelling. Even from a great distance, Dad knew the tilt of Sun Tzu's head, the swing of his arms, his gait. Although the young man was thin, scrubby, wary, exhausted, and in clothes Dad would never have recognized. But good, loving parents know their children in their bones without even thinking. And in case you think it isn't true, 
one Christmas, a few years after I joined the Good Family. Merle's parents were hosting all of us. It was a loud houseful, a holiday get-together, all their seven sons and their spouses and a raft of grandchildren. And a bunch of us were in the kitchen cleaning up, and Merle's mother was at the sink with her back to the room. And one of her sons walked toward her, carrying dishes but saying nothing, And without looking up or turning around, she said, Luke, would you get that pan for me? And I said to her, how did you know who was walking up to you? And she said quickly, oh, I heard Luke's footsteps. Now, these sons of hers didn't live at home anymore. Many of them hadn't for years. But she still knew their different footsteps. A number of years ago, one of our young staff members lost her mother. The young woman was barely in her 20s, and she said to us one day, my greatest grief is losing the one person in the world who truly knows me. I have no one now who really knows me. That's the kind of knowing love we see here. This orderly, proper dad did not send an advance team. He didn't wait for his son to come the whole way to the door. Instead, he stepped outside himself in more ways than one to walk the rest of the way home with his son in full view of the neighbors and the community, all of whom may have thought him unwise. And he showed no restraint. Dad had to know the noisy party would rattle some folks if he even thought about it. He had lived enough of life to know that victories are seldom pure victories, that there's usually a little drag, that things don't clean up quickly and completely. Dad knows there will be some trouble and work on ahead, but he isn't calculating. And sure enough, son one soon arrives, blisteringly angry. Now there's a family explosion, public, loud, and reasonably argued. One son is home again at last. The other is now full of threats and anger. The mix of the utterly human and the utterly divine in this story is a little breathtaking. So what does dad do? He steps outside again, this time, to invite this other son of his to come inside too, reassuring him that he still belonged. This ageless picture of God the parent kind of blows up the approach to life that insists on logic and wants to know that the dots will always connect. It's a downright hazardous story for scorekeepers and skeptics who'd rather that people who mess up have to pay up. It can wear on us orderly types. Notice who Jesus' first audience was for this story. Verse 1 of this chapter says, Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen. Okay, they should hear this. Oh, and then verse 2. And the Pharisees and the scribes who were already grumbling. It's like the church ladies and the churchmen were already anticipating the outcome of this story before Jesus even got started. 
and their hunch was right. They had been watching Jesus, and this story was not going to go the way they thought it rightfully should. If we're completely honest, we may be a little peeved, too. Because we tend to think we should have some reward for what we perceive as doing things the right way, right? But Jesus really didn't seem worried about clearing up what it all means. The things that Jesus leaves open-ended here, in fact, in many of his stories, can be a little startling. Unless you let the story have its way with you. Once again, Jesus leaves the story with us. Here's what's come to me as I thought about this story the last while. I am both sons. I spot them both within me. Here's what I know, too. The more I recognize the need for and have firsthand contact with God's welcome and mercy and love, the more likely I am to want to extend that experience to others. And the more embarrassing and sniveling I find my tendency to shoot out judgment to be. Which of the sons do you think has the greater capacity to behave like his father? Jesus didn't seem to think he had overdrawn the father and his enthusiasm for welcoming back his son, who had been off somewhere for a while. Jesus doesn't round him off or wind him back. In fact, the last we see of dad, he's working with son one, assuring him first that you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. And then immediately stating without apology and without any takebacks, we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. And notice one more thing. This dad does not miss an opportunity. In that very pitched emotional moment, he reminds fuming son one that son two is still his brother. This brother of yours, dad says. No, you can't disown him. You can't ignore him. He's part of us, as are you. The story doesn't really end. It doesn't tie up. Jesus just stops talking about it. And in his deft storytelling, he leaves us in the middle of what's happening and lets it go on inside us. And in that, there is an invitation to move around within the story and find ourselves and to talk about it with each other. This is a God who welcomes us even when we are far off yet moving in God's direction. This is God's work, and this is our work.